Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am your co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And we are here today to talk about, shockingly enough, in a radical lack of departure from our regular format, a poem. We're going to talk about a poem. We are going to read the poem, we're going to talk about the poem, and then we're going to read the poem again. But before we get into that, our quick and mildly desperate plea. If you enjoy the show, it would mean the world to us if you would hop on over to iTunes and give us a rating, preferably five stars, but you know, as the spirit moves you, uh, and a review, because ratings and reviews are the best way to help the podcast find new listeners. It helps us out in the magic Apple iTunes algorithms. You know, we're, we're poetry people. We don't know how that works. Well, Connor took calculus, because um, he's super smart. Um, but <laughs> anyway, Connor can tell you all about algorithms. I don't know how they work, but I, I know the ratings and reviews are the best way to help us climb up that algorithmic ladder. I know so very if little. Are, if you well, agree to disagree. Um, <laughs> but anyway, but do rate us. It really helps. We thank yeah. you. Yeah. But enough about Apple and iTunes. We are here to talk about poetry. And specifically, uh, the poem Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. Uh, Mary Oliver recently passed away, and we thought it was only fitting that we talk about one of her poems. And this is a poem that I selected, and I thought about which of her poems, because she has a lot of them, and they are very good, uh, which one to select. And initially, I was leaning away from the two that might be categorized as uh, her sort of greatest hits which are this one, Wild Geese, and the other one, The Summer Day. And then I realized, you know what? I think it's a greatest hit for a reason, so we should talk about Wild Geese. Very quickly, before, we, before I read the poem, Mary Oliver is probably one of the most popular American poets, if not the most popular and best known. Um, part of the reason for that is because she writes in a very, you know, she gets tagged all the time in a somewhat disparaging way with the the, the dreaded A word, accessible. Um, but she does write in a very accessible way about um, a lot of her poems deal with nature and the natural world. She had an incredibly successful, both in terms of popularity, but also uh, in terms of recognition from prizes. She won a ton of them. She got a Guggenheim Fellowship in 1980. She won the Pulitzer Prize for her book, American Primitive, in 1984. And in 1992, she won the National Book Award for her new and selected poems. A lot of her work grows out of her connection to place, both growing up in Ohio and the area around where she grew up, because she often escaped her somewhat difficult family life by going off on these long walks in nature. Um, but also the town that she then built her, her life and home in, which is Provincetown, Massachusetts. Um, and she lived other places at different parts in her life, but Provincetown is a big part of who she was as a person and as a writer. So I think that's everything I've got as context on Mary Oliver. I don't know if you have anything you wanna make sure we get in there. That's a good summation. Excellent. So with no further ado, Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. 
Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. It's a good one. I am so into this poem. <laughs> I, I've always really enjoyed Mary Oliver's poetry. Indeed, on the very first episode of this podcast, gave yes. her a little shout out because the, you know, it's kind of a cliche, but the end of her other major poem, The Summer Day, is the famous, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. I found that very inspiring in the wake of a fairly life-draining presidential election result. Uh, it was sort of a nice reminder about like personal agency and you know keeping yourself motivated to like fight the good fight in the face of uh, darkness. But yeah, I'm I'm very into this into this poem. I'm uh, I'm curious curious what your thoughts are for a poem like this, which is like I don't know what you would call it, like a, a modern classic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, sort of like uh, Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight in many ways. <laughs> yeah. No, it's um, there's some there was like a New Yorker piece. Um, I think that was published in the just in the, uh, recently after she passed away. And it was talking about this poem and said in a 2001 talk to the Lannan Foundation, she introduced wild geese which with the summer day, as you were mentioning, is her poetic equivalent of an arena rock ballad. <laughs> Which, yeah, seems right. Dream on! Uh, dream on! Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's, yeah, I, I really love it. It's a very, it's interesting because sometimes I remember the poem and I sort of remember like, the kind of, you know, like the beginning, you do not have to be good. You know, this this end, like the world offers itself um, to your imagination. These kind of like the big statements of the poem in some kind of way. And I, which I think are very powerful, but sometimes I forget just the way that the poem moves and all the sort of little things that are going on in the poem, which I think um, especially as it became more popular, I think, you know, one of the, the great powers and also, I think, in addition to the sort of accessibility aspect, which people curmudgeonly academics um, disparage, I think, there's also this, it's, you know, the speaker of this poem and a lot of Mary Oliver's poems are kind of like a sage poet or like um, someone who has this kind of wisdom or knowledge and is kind of telling you about it you know it, there's a didactic quality to it where it's like you know you do not have to be good you know it's not like um there is personal expression but it's not like an an expressive 
poem of like, this is what it was like for me. You know, it's like, I'm addressing you and I'm telling you a way that you can live a life basically. And so I think that oftentimes I forget, um, I remember the sort of the teaching moments that the poem offers, you know, the wisdom that it brings, but I forget the, the poem part of it, which is how it moves. Um, and so it was really, I was just glad that we, yeah, we could spend the time to think about that and the poem sort of as an entirety. Um, Definitely. I think it's interesting that you mentioned the sort of sage aspect, because I think in a way, because this is addressed to you, there's this sense kind of because of how it ends where the speaker is telling you like, hey, you fit into the world. Um, it's almost like the speaker is placing the you at the end where there's sort of this direction being given almost, which can feel because of how the poem is constructed, it, it feels like a very gentle placement and like a comforting placement. And I think there's even almost like a therapeutic side to it. Um, kind of mm. like the, where the speaker calls out, you know, tell me about despair yours and I will tell you mine. There's like this specific kind of interpersonal communion going on, but it does feel like the speaker is on a slightly different level than the you in terms of like, understanding some stuff yeah i think that's really right i mean it, it's kind of it's again the the power but also the risk which is like you know any choice sort of has those two aspects to it but of this sort of heavy second person is that it it makes sort of strong assumptions about this you who the you is or what the you is going through which is like a very um you know, a bold move for a poem that maybe it was, you know, in the time of its writing addressed to a specific person, but now, you know, be is read by, you know, anyone and everyone um, who are coming from, you know, so many different places, like starting with, you do not have to be good, that already assumes the the reader is kind of struggling with some kind of guilt or shame about like you know i'm trying to live my life this way or like i find myself maybe like indulging in something that i feel ashamed about or i'm you know living too selfishly or i don't any any sort of kind of um conflict like that um and i think that it's successful because it is a very common probably probably near you know everyone thinks about it sometimes i also think it's a particularly american there's a lot of shame and guilt um which there probably is everywhere but um so to begin with you do not have to be good um if someone you know wasn't sort of either had never felt that or wasn't in a particular place to feel that it immediately would be distancing for them potentially um, because it's the you would suddenly miss them. Um, so yeah, I think, I think you're right to talk about also the fact that the speaker is on a kind of different level. It's almost like someone is like, has been crawling 
in a cave and is desperate and Mary Oliver sort of descends with is like here is the way out of the cave and you know I will show you the light kind of thing descends on the wings of a wild goose perhaps <laughs> um I yeah. totally agree I do personally just find that as an opening line to be genius how good is that line because so I good. think almost everybody has something about themselves about which they do not feel good like yeah. 99.9% of the human population. I agree also that it has a particular kind of like American tinge of guilt to it, which is like a whole thing that is like hard to parse out what exactly that might be. But it's something that <laughs> kind of permeates a lot of her work is this very specific kind of like undercurrent of like guilt or shame or uncertainty about personal goodness. Probably also stemming a little bit from her relationship to religion, um, which was very important to her. Uh, her relationship to faith and, and religion and God was something she thought and about a lot. Um, but just like how, how cool is you do not have to be good, just right out of the gate, dang. Yeah. Um, and I have two, two things that I was thinking about. One thing I learned from listening to Mary Oliver's interview for the On Being podcast. And I admit, I only listened to the unedited version. Don't know if this made it into the full one. I have to imagine it made it into the edited version because, whoa. Um, <laughs> but Mary Oliver revealed that this whole poem started because she was making a point to a friend about end-stopped lines. And so it was originally going to be a poem where all the lines were end stopped. And she was going to be like, look, you can do that too. Like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, and so it was kind of like to her friend who was, or a student who was like working on poetry. And she was just like, yeah, no, I'll just bang out a quick poem on some end stopped lines. And like, you know, it'll be fine. Yeah. Um, and it turned into this, one of the best known and most widely shared poems probably today, currently. Um, so yeah, that's kind of crazy, which also speaks to like, she was somebody who was very intense about writing a lot all the time. She had a very like consistent writing practice and it's it shows that kind of dedication shows when you can sit down to do a kind of nothing like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna do this, you know, like some end stop lines and you end up with a poem that is this meaningful to so many people. Like that doesn't just happen. That's because you have written thousands of other poems good bad published immediately discarded like you just are so in the practice of crafting your thoughts into poems that you can sit down and do that i think that's a really cool just kind of like whoa wait yeah go. i love that oh my god i had no idea isn't that uh, crazy that is so cool yeah no you're totally right it's like um like i feel like when I was a sort of first starting to write, I was thinking about, which I still do sometimes, but it's like, I want to write about this feeling or like this happened to me and this is the content that I want to write. Um, and I feel like as I've written more, uh, not nearly as much as Mary Oliver did. Really? No, in fact, quite a bit less and my work ethic is quite a bit worse um but i've developed a sort of 
you you become comfortable with a certain range of content or or you become assured that certain things are available to you and so you can kind of in your sort of that those things become more of a muscle memory type thing and so in your deliberate thoughts you can be like i'm gonna write end stop lines um and everything else will come from there uh you can get very specific so that's very that's fascinating um it is true that this poem sort of makes very good use of end stop lines um you know the beginning you do not have to be good um tell me about despair yours and i will tell you mine meanwhile the world goes on there are lines that have there's there's longer sentences but there's very few in jammed lines so there's you do not have to walk on your knees line break for a hundred miles that's one of them meanwhile the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain line break are moving across the landscapes um and then the at the end over and over announcing your place line break in the family of things um those are the only instances where there's not like a period or a comma or something like that yeah, and I, I think, I mean, the basic thing you could say about that is it is it lends itself to a very assured, sort of steady, confident, authoritative tone. I totally agree. Um, I think there's one other one, because uh, you only have to let the soft animal of your body line break, love what it loves. Yes. So I think there's right. four lines in an 18-line poem that do not have any kind of punctuation at the end. Um, but yeah, it, it's this very assured voice, um, partially because of the strong declaration at the beginning, but also because of that assurance throughout. And the fact that I had also read that New Yorker article where it likens it to an arena rock ballad. <laughs> um, I was thinking of Tom Petty, who is somebody else who, I, I know I've talked about him before on the podcast. Sorry, everybody, it's a thing. <laughs> um, but he passed away not long ago. October of 2017 and was someone else whose work was known for being like more plain spoken than other people who do what he did. So the other people who are known as like really great rock songwriters are like Bruce Springsteen. And he comes out with these lines, you know, that are really either ornate in his early records, or they have these really complicated, you know, I was gonna be a Romeo, you were gonna be my Juliet. These days you don't wait on Romeos, you wait on that welfare check. Um, there's lost angels on your fire escape. They lie to your mama for you trying to keep you safe. Like it's very different kinds of language than Tom Petty who comes out with this song, I won't back down, <laughs> I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. And it's one of his most successful songs by far, like immediately completely resonated with people more so than any other song he ever released. He said people would sing it back and tell him how much it meant to them, that specific song. And in the process of writing it, he was very worried that it was like too straightforward. He had come too close to just saying something, but it turned out to be a really important message. And it fit very much with who he was as a person he got into all these disputes with his record label and like refused to back down in the face of them telling him like, we're going to sue you forever. You can't afford your lawyers, blah, 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 blah. Like he was somebody who himself was like, not going to back down. So 
there's an authenticity in the message the same way I think there's a deep authenticity in what Mary Oliver is saying here in this poem about in the face of despair turning to the natural world, um, which we can get into the intricacies of. Um, but I was also thinking of him because as I was saying, like this poem was initially started as like kind of an exercise for a friend and it turned into something else, uh, which is what happened with another song from the Full Moon Fever album that was incredibly popular, Free Falling, where they were mixing another song and Tom Petty's at the keyboard and he's trying to make his producer laugh. So he's like playing some chords and he's like, she's a good girl, loves her mama, loves Jesus, and America too. And that's why that song is like, again, resonated with a lot of people. But when you look at the lyrics, you're like, what are you doing here, Tom? Like, what's this? And it's because <laughs> it started out as like an in-studio joke. But again, Tom Petty is somebody who by that point in his career had been writing pop rock songs for like 20 years all the time. And so when he sat down to write a joke song, he actually <laughs> wrote a really good song. Um, so yeah, sorry for my Tom Petty diversion. But no. it, it was occupying my mind for the reasons I stated. I won't back down free falling. And he also passed away recently and was someone who was not quite as, you know, ornate or like didn't have the songwriting awards lavished upon him. Uh, doesn't get the like academic assessment that like Paul Simon, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, other rock and roll artists get. But he is somebody who very much exists on the same level in terms of the like craft of his songwriting. It's just a little bit different. And I think that's kind of the case for Mary Oliver, who won a lot of awards, but also came in for, as you were saying, like curmudgeonly academics would sort of give her a hard time for loving nature and stuff. Yeah. And a lot of those curmudgeonly academics were dudes and there was definitely definitely is a sexist element to the way that she's been she was received um over the years very um, much so it's an but important it, point but yeah i think i think that's a good um that's a good way to think about it through the the tom petty as a side note way back in the day when i was first listening to free fallen as a kid I thought the lyrics was she loves Cheez-Its and not Jesus. And um, I really, that resonated with me a lot because I loved Cheez-Its and she really did seem like that would be the one for me. Oh my God. So when I learned that the real lyrics were Jesus, I was actually pretty disappointed. Connor, you're blowing my mind right now. <laughs> I love it. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, language is hard. It's like you hear something and the ear is an imperfect tool. Let me yeah. tell you. Call Wittgenstein. Get him in here to solve this. Yeah, seriously. Um, uh, but I do think that the point that you're making about his worry that won't back down will just be a, a something said rather than um, like a, a more of a song. I think that speaks to an important point about poetry too. Another way of saying what I had said was that when I remember this poem or other Oliver poems, I remember the statement part of it. You know, I remember, tell me what you'll do with your one wild and precious life. Um, and I think that oftentimes because Oliver does have those statements that are so like powerful and then get quoted out of context of the poem, she sort of 
I think people think of her sometimes as, you know, she's not really writing poems. She's just writing like self-help or something like that, um, which I think is not the case. Um, and that's, so that's what was so, I love doing so much in this poem was just thinking about the ways in which this poem, while it was making statements, was itself just a kind of, you know, emotional experience. Um, and the way I started thinking about that was just thinking about the way that the poem, you know, moved and the different kinds of little arguments or things that, that happen in it. Um, you know, it begins with, you do not have to be good. And there's this kind of like, you only have to love, you know, the soft, uh, you have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loved. You know, that's the, the essential thing. Um, and then, you know, tell me about despair. So there's this kind of like first, this like letting the you off the hook in some kind of way from something that's keeping them from accessing, you know, love or self-worth or something. Um, and then there's this sort of reach out to the, the you to, you know, tell me about despair, your despair, and I'll tell you mine. There's this connection, this bridge that's being, you know, built there in the poem. And then there's this, meanwhile, the world goes on. So there's like the me and the you, and then there's the world happening, um, sort of regardless of whatever you're doing. And then this is where I feel like it's, I was very surprised and I'd only noticed when I was reading it this time. There's the part where it says, you know, wherever, whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination. And both of those things by themselves are sort of interesting, but straightforward sort of things to think about. The world goes on. And, you know, the world is there for you to think about and fill your imagination with. But together, they actually have a kind of tension uh, and a kind of interesting relationship. You know, one is the world is indifferent to you in some kind of way. Meanwhile, the world goes on. But then the, the next thing that's said is it offers itself to your imagination, which don't sort of intuitively go together. Um, and so that's kind of like a moment I feel like when the poem, like it was a poem before, but it, it becomes a poem in some kind of way where there's like the, the movement of thought is not cohesive as an argument, but is rather indicative of, of a, of a kind of, you know, emotional and intellectual experience that's progressing as the poem is progressing. Yeah. I was just very interested with that. It made me think of like, it's only when you can kind of accept that the world is going on, that then you can also like then reapproach the world, like with your imagination or something. Like there's a kind of like, there's steps that are needed to kind of open up this you that's, that's in this dark despair, this kind of isolation to feel connected again. Um, Anyway, I was just curious, you know, how you were thinking about, like, the way that the poem progressed. I was dazzled by it. It was very moving to me. Yeah, I am, I am in agreement. Um, 
I think <laughs> in terms of how the poem progresses, it feels to me a little bit like there are two lines that kind of jumpstart its movement. And it is kind of what you were pointing out. Tell me about despair yours and I will tell you mine, which then kicks off into the three meanwhiles, which is while the world goes on. And then this list of different natural places, almost as though you're like, you are the goose flying over all these places. And then the next meanwhile is the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. And then I think the next line that kind of jumpstarts the next part is whoever you are, no matter how lonely. And so the two lines to me that offer the greatest momentum in the poem are the two that are dealing with despair and loneliness. And so while this poem is, I think overall, I leave it with a sort of hopeful, um, like I'm not despairing when I end this poem. I don't feel like it's pointing me in the direction of further melancholic introspection, let's say. It's sort of like, hey, I know that you are feeling these feelings and they are real. And in fact, I have them too. But don't forget, there's all of this other stuff out there and you are a part of that too. And what is so important to make that message work and not feel like, you know, a postcard, oftentimes these pieces, as you were saying, they get taken out of context and then put into a meme. Well, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. Well, actually, the line before that is doesn't everything die at last and too soon. There's like a <laughs> real like that. Those lines about what are you going to do with your life? It's not just, oh, your life is so great. What are you going to do with it? Endless possibilities. <laughs> no, it's like, hey, uh, death is, is like inevitable. Like maybe kick ass while you're here a little bit. Um <laughs> <laughs> but I, and I think that's a part of Mary Oliver's work that is often overlooked when pieces of it are excerpted or when she is being unfairly maligned. It's like there's this deep current of sadness and despair and all this other stuff running underneath it that she is in many ways writing against in her sort of poetic project, which is to like get people to pay attention to the really great stuff going on around them, not to discount the importance of the like hard and challenging and despairing and lonely and all that stuff. Like part of the reason that she is so into the natural world is because it was her refuge from a horrible childhood and continued to be her refuge throughout her life. In thinking about the movement of the poem, I feel like what helps it move are those pieces of like despair, loneliness, the really darker parts that are that are still very present even the geese which are like the the hopeful sign in some ways are harsh and exciting like the the natural world isn't a perfect pristine place it's just a sort of vast and beautiful one yeah i think that is a really essential point um and i was also thinking about the harsh that use of the word harsh seems so key um because there is another version of this poem that is just on like a tranquil pond and everything is very pretty and stuff. Um, and that's um, often I, I think like, then when people like make fun of quote unquote nature poetry, I feel like it's often framed in that kind of way. Um, and she's very specific about the the kinds of nature that she's talking about. Um, and also, as you were saying, you know, not, it's not a romantic, I don't, I mean, it might be capital R romantic uh, in the, you know, the tradition of like Wordsworth or something like that. 
um, or William Blake, but it's not like a, like a nostalgic or like an idealizing of something, I think. Um, the other part about nature that I thought was very interesting was it's also not like I'm admiring this aesthetic thing that's in the natural world and it's so amazing. Like the very important part at the end is that the geese, which is the kind of proxy for the world itself, the simile and the, the microcosm is announcing your place in the family of things. So one thing that she does is is kind of, it's it's an insistence that it's not this like, the humans are admiring this other thing, nature. It's like the humans are in nature, which is happening, and we have a place within it. Um, and and it's just interesting how she does that. Like one thing that I that I love is the the line: "You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves." Um, partly because that's just very beautiful and also you know um the soft animal of your body is just a great phrase um but it does before it also sets up i think the ending a little bit where it's sort of talking about humans you know as animal in this kind of way um where and it and it's talking about letting that part of yourself sort of um, be able to love itself or love whatever it loves. And so then when we get to the end and the geese is sort of announcing your place in the family of things, if you have allowed the animal part of yourself um, to be more open, you know, then, then you're, you're more easily, then you can be a part of it, I suppose. Um, so I just thought that was very elegant because they're quite far apart from each other in the poem. Um, but I thought that was a the use of the soft animal, the word animal there felt like subtly very important toward the, the closing of the poem. Totally agree. Um, and it also is this moment of connection to the natural world that comes right before the line that is the moment of connection between the speaker and the you. So it's like this very subtle two lines about connection that are right together as well. That again, as you were pointing to the way the poem moves, that's a really elegant way to have the poem move. And I love too how it's the, the, it's the family of things. It's such a like understated way to talk about, like it's a family, okay. Um, it has partly the, the family and the, the way that we know it when we talk about you know, family relations, but it also probably has a more of the scientific family species genus, I was kind of thinking. Um, but then it's not like, um, again, it's not this idealized thing. It's a family of things. It's just a bunch of different things that are connected and you're just have a place in that. Like, it's not like some holy, circle of i don't know great demigods or, i don't know there's not like a there's not a grandeur to the end um and that feels really important um and surprising i think um 
And yeah, I, I, yeah, I just really appreciate that. Um, I think you're totally right. It's a very humble ending. And even like the proxy for nature is geese. Like geese are not, not a fancy nature proxy. There's, <laughs> there's so many other birds that have much more colorful plumage or are less common. You know, it's like just some wild geese, you know, doing their thing. And you're, you're right there with them, right? You know, it's pretty cool. In some ways, it made me think of, there's a, a W.B. Yeats poem called The Wild Swans at Cool, um, which is a fairly well-known, it's quite different in some ways, but um, it's about cool is this place in Ireland, but basically it, the speaker um, encounters like 59 swans in this place, it's very specific about the number um, and has this kind of, you know, huge moment. Um, and it's an interesting counterpoint because the the swans are in that poem called, you know, brilliant creatures. Um, you know, it's they're on the brimming water, autumn beauty, um, the bell beat of their wings. So there is, it's serving a different purpose, but in that way, the the swans are the kind of like elegant, um, mat, like, you know, majesties of the natural realm. And in here, it's the wild geese that are harsh and exciting. Um, and so, yeah. Um, anyway, I was thinking about different large winged animals. <laughs> no, I think that's such a cool connection because it is it is a little bit, as you were saying, the, the geese are described very differently here, the degree to which they are, but it's also such a different idea of what nature is or what you know something meaningful in the presence of nature can be because you can have these sort of beautiful swan birds and you're like, wow, cool birds. Um, <laughs> Or you have these wild geese, which are harsh and exciting. It's like this body and approachable version of nature that is just sort of there for you to, you know, the world offers itself to your imagination. Here are these geese offering themselves to you. You can take them as they are, these kind of unremarkable birds that you see all the time, or the world may be offering itself to your imagination and you can do what has just been done earlier in the poem and imagine them flying over a place, you know, where the world goes on the sun and the clear pebbles and the rain are moving across the landscapes over prairies and the deep trees and mountains and the rivers. Like maybe you can imagine where this goose has flown instead of just taking it as it is. Open your imagination, let the world in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And imagination is such a um, important word and is like such an important word for poetry specifically. Um, it's often, Wallace Stevens has a big um, thing about how imagination is, you know, in crude terms, the best. <laughs> or the, the, the ultimate sort of way of being or something. Um, and in William Carlos Williams' uh, books, Bring It All, there are these poems, but then there's these long rambling prose sections and they're basically all about the power of the imagination. 
and the form itself too and i think this is in part its difficulty but in part its great reward is poetry relies so heavily on the reader's imagination to sort of do its work i mean we live in a time when you actually don't have to have that much imagination like uh we're very stimulating you know film and tv and like video games are sort of occupy all of our senses um and so it it doesn't require much work on our part to like have a quote-unquote satisfying experience um but poetry is even less stimulating in some ways than uh you know, fiction, which has, you know, the, the juice of narrative or whatever. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's a, I, I always think that there's a slight little nod to poetry whenever imagination sort of crops up in a poem, because it, it's kind of the thing, the thing that you need to appreciate poetry. Um, but it's also the thing in this poem that you kind of need to be able to open yourself up to like the wider world um, and, and get out of your loneliness in that kind of way. That's very cool. I like that. I like that a lot. The last sort of little thing, which I won't super quote, but there was a piece that was written on Lit Hub, um, also after Oliver passed away by a writer, Brandon Taylor. And one thing that he said that I just loved is that um, he wrote, I'll say simply that Wild Geese is a poem that made me want to breathe again, um, which I just think is a beautiful way of um, talking about it and yeah and we'll post a link to that article because it's a really it's a good essay i also read that essay in lit hub and i think it's something that's really important about mary oliver and particularly this poem because we you know a lot of people talk about oh you know poetry can save your life and everything this is a poem that demonstrably has saved lives and relationships like it has had a real world impact and how often can you like really know that about a poem and I think that's something really interesting and, and special about this poem and Mary Oliver as a poet, because she really did reach a lot of people. Do you have anything else? Uh, I'd like to say that I think geese get a bum rap. I recently have been up until maybe two weeks ago, I have been guilty of disparaging our winged feathern. I love birds. I know that is Controversial in some circles, many people are afraid of them. I'm into them. Way to go, birds. Geese, I always just thought of as the angry ones uh, who I didn't want to be close to for fear of getting beaked. But then I had a realization about geese, okay? And it kind of has to do with our current political situation. Whoa. Because geese provide two very important public services in this time of Trump. Number one, they shit on golf courses constantly all the time. Way wow. to go, geese. Environmental activists. <laughs> Keep up the good work, geese. Number two, specifically thinking about the migratory patterns of uh, Canadian geese, 
they show very little interest in or respect for the arbitrary borders that humans have created, particularly on the North American continent. And at a time when that is a crucial issue, I very much appreciate that they are activists on this as well. So big shout out to Geese. Thank you very much, Geese. Glad to have you as part of the resistance. I love that. Should we um, read it again? Let's do it. Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Hey everybody, this is Jack again. Thank you so much for listening. This is the part of the show where we tell you all the different ways you can get in touch with us because we love to hear from you. If you have ideas for future episodes, comments on this or any of our past episodes, different readings of poems than the ones that we offered, we want to hear it. Uh, the fastest and easiest way to get in touch with us is on Twitter. The show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. You can also get in touch with us via email if you have lengthier thoughts. Our email address is CloseTalkingPoetry at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Close Talking. And of course, the very best way to stay up to date on the latest Close Talking happenings is to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Uh, we're also available in addition to iTunes on Stitcher and SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time.